1 Samuel chapter 26, if you'll join me there. We've been watching David sort of being pursued by Saul for a number of chapters now. David's been living sort of like a refugee, a a fugitive, as he's been pushed uh, out of his comfort zone and living in the wilderness. Saul chasing him around different territories, making David's life miserable. God has assembled around David at this point, a group of about 600 men we know. That's not counting as well, as we'll see as we get to some of the last few chapters here in 1 Samuel, that these 600 men, uh, by this point in time, they also have wives and children. So again, the picture we want to keep in our mind here is David's moving around. Not only is he moving around with a group of of soldiers who kind of become some of what the Bible later refers to as his mighty men. But on top of that, he's he's managing multiple uh, wives and children. So I mean, possibly up to maybe a thousand people now. And imagine what that's like. Again, trying to move around the wilderness, trying to hide away in caves to keep themselves safe. I mean, it's one thing you just have a group of military men, but when you're moving around women and small children and any of their possessions, that just complicates the whole process. But again, in all these things, as we said, God is utilizing all these circumstances, the different components of what David's dealing with, the difficulties, the trials, as really just a training school to prepare David for his future role to be the king of Israel and that he would have the heart God wanted him to have. He'd have the skill set and the capacities. And again, just important reminders for us that as we find ourselves subjected to things in our experiences, as we're kind of wandering around and we find things causing challenges in our lives and we face difficulties and hardships and and problematic people even that all those things God's using those everyday experiences in your life and in my life always to prepare us for that next thing that he has in front of us anything you are experiencing today or maybe even have experienced in your past God never wastes anything he he's a very good investor he's a good stewardship and oftentimes he's preparing us for that next thing that's ahead of us we may not all and know what that is Uh, but like David God's working in our lives and so David as we see go on here is going to now face for himself in chapter 26 a very similar situation that we saw him face just a few chapters ago where he has a very clear opportunity to take matters into his own hands and to take control of the situation he's facing for himself and kind of steer the ship in the way he would want to and maybe even try and eliminate some of the hassles and problems in his life and almost kind of prematurely advance God's plan for his life by doing something in the flesh and we'll find that he ends up being victorious over that. You'll notice the similarities as we go through it. It tells us in chapter 26 verse 1 that the Ziphites who we saw before back remember a few chapters ago the people in that area they came to Saul at Gibeah saying to him is David not hiding in the hill of Hakalah opposite of Jeshimon so for a second time now a few chapters ago we saw that these people the Ziphites did much the same thing where they gave intel to King Saul regarding David's location his hideout where he was 
And it seems here, again, what they're basically doing, these people from Ziph, the Ziphites, that they're basically trying to just curry favor with King Saul. They want to have the favor of the throne. And sadly, they have no interest in the fact that Saul is completely out to, you know, to lunch at this point in time. I mean, he's got a horrible agenda. He's not doing what's right, but they're simply looking out, hey, well, it doesn't matter. Whatever's in our best self-interest, so if this gets us favor with the throne, I mean, yeah, the guy's doing things wrong. He's hurting people and ruining people's lives, but if it benefits us, why not? Uh, And sadly, sometimes that's people's mentality. I mean, to this day still, there are individuals who are very unhealthy and doing very you know, horrible things, but yet there are people still enabling and empowering them because really there are people just utilizing what they can benefit and get from them, whether it's in an employment situation or, or whatever scenario politically. And so here the Ziphites, they come, they're looking to gain favor with the throne to benefit themselves. So they disclose to Saul David's location so he can once again come seek him out. And that's exactly what Saul does. Verse two, it says, so Saul then arose went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness. So once again, as before, Saul doesn't go with just a few hundred men. David has 600. He goes with five times that amount of military personnel, 3,000 chosen men, because he knows uh, that David is a skilled warrior. He knows David is very good at what he is doing. So he takes 3,000 men, again, in pursuit, goes out to the wilderness of Ziph. Verse 3 says, And Saul then encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite of Jeshimon, right near the area where David supposedly was hiding out, by the road, And David, however, notice, again, paying attention to what Saul is doing because he needs to always be sober and vigilant where his enemy is at, even as we need to be sober and vigilant where our enemy is at, the devil, not Saul. We need to do much the same. So David, it says, knowing that that the enemy is in his territory, stayed in the wilderness and he saw, he took note, that Saul came after him into the wilderness And David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul indeed had come. So Saul goes to pursue David once again with the intention to destroy him. David here we see using incredible wisdom, using strategy. He's using good stewardship to deal effectively with the efforts of his enemy who is trying to destroy his life. Uh, And this is exactly what we should do as God's people because the Bible says that we too have an enemy, a constant, chronic, continual enemy that's just trying to destroy our lives. Uh, Peter writes about uh, the devil, the enemy of our souls, and he tells us to be sober and to be vigilant because he says your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking, like Saul here, seeking constantly whom he may devour. And so therefore, we have to be, as God's people, watchful. We have to be always vigilant. We have to realize that our enemy is an opportunist and he's always looking for avenues and ways to seek out us in our vulnerability, to trip us up, to ensnare us. The Bible doesn't even use very comfortable terms. It says like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I don't know the last time you watched the Discovery Channel, and watch the lion get a hold of some prey, but he doesn't just nibble on its ear. I mean, when a lion gets a hold of a, of, of a, of a prey, I mean, it just, that's the term, devour, ferocious. 
And, and this is the devil's intention. He doesn't want to just kind of make you stub your toe or step on one of the kid's Legos and say a cuss word or something. I mean, I mean, God forbid that that may be sinful. But trust me when I tell you that that's not what the devil's agenda is in your life. He's looking for a much more ruinous pathway than just getting you to do something subtle and, and rather foolish and trivial. He wants to devour your life. I assure you his agenda is to destroy in a devourous way your life to completely just rip it to shreds and do whatever he can to cause havoc in your life and so like david here we need to jesus tells us to watch and pray lest we fall into temptation we need to be watchful david here he's paying attention he's not being naive he knows that there is always an enemy looking to capture to destroy to harm him so david's staying where he's at he's using wisdom he's keeping himself in a safe spot that's good stewardship we as god's people should keep ourselves in a safe spot you're doing that this evening this is called a safe spot it's called being with god's people so the bible tells us to do this and why the scripture says in hebrews that we're not to forsake the assembling together of ourselves and all the more as we see the day the day of the lord approaching and the reason is, is because the days aren't going to get easier. They're going to get darker and it's going to get harder and more difficult. And if there's ever time the body of Christ needs to be together more continuously, it's now because this is what keeps us safe. And here, David sending out scouts and spies looking for where Saul is paying attention. We, we need to pay attention lest we get devoured by our enemies. So verse five, David, it says, arose came to the place now this is interesting what he does once he finds out where Saul is camping out it says David arose came to the place where Saul had encamped and he saw the place where Saul lay it seems looking in from a distance maybe from an elevated you know viewpoint and he saw Abner the son of Ner Abner was basically like the chief of security uh, the, the head bodyguard if you would for King Saul the commander of his army and Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him so so Saul's men are doing exactly what they should do here that you know you put the king in the center and they're all camped around him they they recognize listen this is our leader so we need to recognize that if this is our leader we we need to provide shelter we need to and so they're all camping around him sort of in a sense running uh, you know interference to protect to make sure nothing would happen to their leader they want to make sure that he stays safe that he's stable so that he can provide leadership to them as their king so they're doing what's wise and you have Saul kind of in the center and then all of his men imagine 3,000 men surrounding him where here he is in the center of the camp and verse 6 tells us that David Having, having noticed where they were, zeroed in on what location they were at, David, this says, said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, brother of Joab. So these were two of the men that were with David. He turns to these two men and proposes something rather bizarre. If you think of it, he says, who wants to go down with me? into to Saul in the camp and I'm I'm wondering if they're thinking in their minds they probably you know you don't say these kind of things out loud thinking who would want to do that what do you mean who wants to go with you or are we trying to run from this guy like we're, we're trying to do everything we can what are you are, are you upset with us too is that why you invited us to this special meet you know meeting David what are you asking the two of us for that for well who wants to go down into Saul's camp I mean we're doing everything we can to stay away from Saul now I have to believe that this is probably 
the spirit of God that is putting this idea into David's mind and on David's heart because when we get over to verse 12 David is completely preserved and protected by the Lord so much so that he gets down into the camp and back out safely and it says God put the people in a deep sleep sovereignly supernaturally God did something miraculous so that they could get into the camp and back out in the way that they did so as God's cooperating in the process and participating it seems that perhaps the Lord has put this on David's heart, but David kind of offers here these two men an opportunity to go out and serve alongside him. And nothing about this endeavor, would you agree, would be easy. I mean, this is not an easy task. He doesn't invite them to do something that's comfortable or, or you could say safe. It required courage. This required a selfless spirit. It was a total journey of faith to go along with David to partner with him, to step into this measure of service, it would require selflessness. Not all the details were given. All he says is, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? A little more details on that, David. What exactly are we going to be doing? But what it, he's inviting them to take a step of faith, to go along with him in this venture of whatever ministry or idea or service was upon David's mind. It was going to take faith it was going to take courage a selfless spirit but he proposes to them notice an invitation he doesn't require them he says who will go it reminds me of isaiah chapter 6 where there it says that isaiah overhears i believe the trinity having a conversation saying whom shall go for us and whom shall we send and isaiah responds here am i lord send me but I almost get the sense there that as Isaiah is just worshiping and, and being sensitive to the things of God, it's almost as if his heart becomes sensitive to the things of, of the Lord. And he hears this conversation kind of going on among the Trinity. You know, who, who do you think would go for us? Who do you think we could send to do this? And Isaiah somehow getting word of this, he then voluntarily proposes himself. Here am I, send me. So as David's asking much the same, it says, Abishai said, I will go down with you. He makes a decision to partner with David in this ministry endeavor, to partner with David in this act of service, this step of faith. He says, I'm willing. I'll take the invitation. I'm willing to go along with you. He volunteers himself. I'm willing to offer himself as a loyal, devoted companion to David even though it was going to require, as I said, a great measure of personal sacrifice to offer himself in this way. And I look at this and I think, what a beautiful picture because I can't help but to wonder if sometimes one greater than David, the son of David, Jesus, our leader, and as I said before, you look at the men who rallied around David. Remember, the Bible told us they were a group of men who were in debt, in distress and discontent and it was like a perfect picture of exactly all of us and that's who rallies the jesus you know a bunch of people who were, were were in debt to sin we're indebted you know we've created all these losses in our lives through our and we're in distress because we've made messes of our lives half of us and we're you know we're discontent with the world and life and ourselves and we're just sick and tired of being sick and tired and that's the kind of you know band and brigade of individuals you and i there's a picture of it right here in the room tonight that all rally around jesus and here one of these individuals gets an opportunity hey do you, do you want to go do this with me and i think sometimes the lord as i said does much what david does here he says who wants to go with me 
Who, who wants to go do this? Who wants to go help in this situation or step into this circumstance? Or you know, And, and the Lord doesn't force us. He, he affords us an opportunity. He kind of asks a question. He doesn't require us to do things. He doesn't force us to do things. He doesn't like forced labor. He likes voluntary service. And I'll tell you this, whenever, whenever we're going to serve the Lord and step into something where we kind of get a privilege to partner with him and go do something, just like David's offer here, a lot of times it requires the same thing. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. And I've learned over the years the truth repeatedly again and again. No effective ministry is convenient. If you're looking for a convenient ministry, that's fine, but it's never going to be effective. <laughs> ministry usually is inconvenient. It's a part of what Paul was telling Timothy when he said, be prepared in season and out of season. When it's, you know, you're ready and it's easy and it seems like the right season and it works and fits. And then in the other times when it just seems totally out of season and it requires just total death to yourself and inconvenience, th those are times to minister too. A lot of times they're the most effective times to minister. So it's not going to be easy. It's going to require steps of faith. We're not going to have all the details like Abishai doesn't have all the details. We're going to have to have a selfless spirit and some courage and say, okay, I'm in. I'll go with you. I'll, I'll be devoted to you and partner with you. And yet when we do that, we get to step out with Jesus and experience some of the really wonderful things he leads us into. So Abishai, he commits to David. He has no idea really what he's committed to, but what looks like probably from his mind thinking this is a really suicidal mission here, but... All right, David, if you're in, you're my leader. I'm with you. I'll follow you. Verse 7, so David and Abishai came to the people by night, it says, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp and his spear stuck in the ground by his head. You notice Saul always has his spear handy. And in a lot of ways, that was kind of his, like, his scepter in that. That was a mark of his authority and the fact that he was, in a sense, connected to the throne. But he's always got his spear at hand close by. So you imagine here he is sleeping, his spear stuck in the ground right there next to his head where he's sleeping at. That's his weapon. And also, it says, Abner and the people lay all around him. So envision, as I said, Abner is chief of security, all his security and bodyguards, and then all the, the rest of the 3,000 men fanned out encircling the king. And Abishai, who went with David, says to David as they get into the camp there, and I imagine it had to be more of a whisper, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. So they get into the camp. They get right into, there's Saul right in front of them. Everyone's sleeping. No one's woken up. And there is Saul's actual spear right next to his head. And Abishai is thinking here for the second time now, David. Remember, just a few chapters ago, Saul came into the cave where David and his men were, it says, to attend to his needs or to relieve himself. And there were David and all his men. He's completely in the cave, all alone, vulnerable. And David goes over and has a perfect opportunity to completely take him out, one blow, kill him. Saul is gone. The problem's removed. Let's move on. Let's go take the throne. No more headache and heartache and hassles and we're tired of this. David comes back having clipped off a little corner of his robe and says, I just, I, I can't do it. I can't touch the Lord's anointed. I, I can't, in a sense, take matters into my own hands. That's God's prerogative and it wouldn't be right for me to do something that's God's business. And so David doesn't kill him. Now, you have to imagine his men 
probably struggled with that. And they're probably thinking, man, I, what was David getting like soft or something? I mean, does he realize how hard this is on all of us? I mean, we got a vested interest in this too. We're following this guy all around. His heartache is our headache. All his problems are our problems. And everything he's dealing with, we're dealing with as well. So now Abishai looks at that. He's thinking, okay, David, hey, everybody gets three strikes. So you struck out there in the cave. Okay, no problem. Boss, you struck out in the cave. Maybe that's why you asked me to come with you. <laughs> you struck out in the cave. Here he is. The spear's right by his head. Everybody's sleeping. And I'll tell you what, even if you can't do it, maybe it bothers your conscience too much. Just give me the word. One strike. I'll drive the point home. No pun intended. I will finish this. One shot. You don't even have to have it on your conscience. I'll do it for you. I'll take the blame for it. Just give me the word. Give me the permission to do it. And so this must have been a very peculiar thing as Abishai now is kind of trying to encourage it. And here's David. He finds himself, as I said, facing the same test again now for a second time. And that's a hard place to be because as, the, as it comes around the second time, there almost starts to be that mental wrestling where, where you start to think to yourself, I mean, did I mess up the first time? M maybe I was wrong. Maybe what everybody else is saying, maybe I should have done A. M you know, instead of doing, maybe I should have just took the situation. In. Maybe I should have, because you notice what his men always say to him, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. That's partly true, but yet the insinuation behind it isn't really accurate. The idea is, look, God served him up on a silver platter. Yes, that is true. But just because God was presenting an opportunity and just because there was an occasion there doesn't mean that David was to act upon it. What it could have meant is that God was testing David's heart again. And God was giving David a chance to prove, David, are you going to take matters into your hands or are you going to trust me in faith? Are you going to manipulate this situation and try and take care of it in your flesh? Or are you going to say, God, I love you more than I do my own self-interest. And so, Lord, I, I, I'm not going to cross the line there, though I could. And in some ways, it, just because there's an opportunity, listen, just because there's an opportunity before us does not mean that we're supposed to take the opportunity. We have to be really careful about this. Because it can be very easy for us to think, oh, well, when people even use God talk, look, God put this opportunity before you, didn't he? I mean, God, God controls everything, so God allowed the opportunity. So if God presented the opportunity, then you should take, well, it may be the opportunity is there, but it may not be that every opportunity that's in front of us is God's opportunity for us to embrace. It may be God's testing our heart. And maybe God wants to see how we're going to handle, how we're going to respond. Will we say no to ourselves in order to honor God maybe instead in a situation? Or, or will we say no to ourselves and rather walk in faith and trust God to do something rather than us, again, taking a situation into our own hands or solving our own problem? And David could have easily solved his own problem here. But again, that goes back to the point again as well. Just because you can solve your problem maybe doesn't mean you're supposed to solve your problem. And I don't know about you, there's been times in my life where you kind of realize, you know what, it's very obvious here what I could do to solve my problem. <laughs> and it would solve my problem. If David said, kill him. And he just gave him the word, that would, he could have solved his own problem. But just because you can solve your problem, does that always mean that you're supposed to solve your problem? Or does it mean that's the way you're supposed to solve your problem? 
it may not necessarily be so. And so David here wisely passes the test. Look at verse nine a second time. He said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. Notice David stood by his conviction. He was not pressured by his feelings in the moment, by his thoughts, by his own reasoning. He was not pressured by other people's opinions and voices to compromise what he knew in his heart was right. And sometimes we find ourselves facing that. Maybe we may pass the test and then the opportunity comes around again and a second time we find ourselves and it's almost that double pressure the second time. Are you going to hold your conviction here? Are you going to cave here? You're going to make a concession now? And sometimes we find ourselves like David here facing the same thing multiple times and it's an opportunity to say, are you going to compromise under the pressure or are you going to hold to your conviction and say, I know what's right in this situation. I know what the Lord showed me. I know what God would want me to do and God would not want me to, to, to take this matter into my own hands because again, he respected the office. He realized God appointed him as a king. The Lord anointed him. So it's God's business to remove him as the king despite what he was doing. And he realized that if he took matters into his own hands, look at verse nine, that if he did that, that is always a pathway towards becoming guilty before God. He says, if I take matters into my own hands, then I'm going to find myself guilty. So he said, I will not do that lest I find myself being guilty. Who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and not or and be guiltless? So again, David realizes the pathway towards guilt is when we start manipulating and putting our hands on something rather than just letting God be in control and we start trying to take it into our own hands. That's always a dangerous place to be. Verse 10, so David said, therefore, furthermore, as the Lord lives, notice the Lord shall strike him. The idea is God will let something happen to him, whether it's maybe he gets a disease or a stroke or a heart attack. Remember, God struck Nabal. David just learned that in the last chapter and, and Nabal died. So he says, either the Lord will strike him. He'll let something happen to him or his day shall come to die. He'll die of old age naturally, or he shall go out to battle and perish but the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let's go so David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away and no man saw or knew or awoke for they all sleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them so notice David realizes this is faith that the Lord was not limited in his ability to accomplish what needed to be done. He says there in verse 10, he says, uh, you know, the Lord's not restricted. God will ultimately take care of this and do it. God could remove Saul by an accident or an illness. He could let him die of old age. He could let him die in the midst of military conflict, but he could remove Saul and deal with the situation that needed to be dealt with. So David said, the Lord forbid that I should put my hand in this situation. I need to keep my hands off let God do what God's supposed to do, which is to be in control and do things his way and in his timing. And that takes faith to just kind of keep our hands off. Again, faith is, listen, ladies and gentlemen, faith is living without scheming. When we find ourselves scheming and trying to make something work in our way or by our effort or our timing or work in an angle, that's not faith. Faith is living without scheming. It's letting God work in his way 
however he wants to, knowing he's not restricted or limited and that in his time he will bring about what he needs to. So David just says, grab the jug of water, take his spear, let's get out of here. Verse 12 tells us they get all the way back out of the camp. Not a single person woke up or knew what happened. And I love verse 12, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. That's what every parent of a newborn wants to happen to their child. Isn't it? I mean, maybe that's a word of the Lord to give out to every person who's just had a baby recently. A deep sleep from the Lord. And it's just showing it. Remember, we read all the way back in the book of Genesis that God put Adam into a deep sleep and took out the rib from his side and fashioned and created Eve uh, from Adam's side. And so here again, we see God controls all things, even sleep. God made 3,000 battle-hardened, trained military men go into a deep sleep and God sovereignly kept them sleeping so that his purpose could be fulfilled to assist David, his servant, in this situation. And again, what David's doing is taking these items to, again, validate and prove, listen, Saul, I could have killed you. I don't want to kill you. I have nothing against you. Why are you trying to destroy me and believing this lie that I want to cause problems? I have no interest in wanting to harm you or destroy the throne. And so again, David takes these items as he did with cutting off the robe to want to try and validate this. Verse 13, when David went over to the other side and stood on the top of the hill afar off, notice a great distance then between them. He was smart. He waited till he got some distance between that group there. That's called faith, but not being presumptuous. It's called being a steward. When you walk in faith, you don't have to be presumptuous and get foolish. He waited till he got on the other side of like a valley, it seems, and then he yells across when he's in a safe spot to the people saying, verse 14, to Abner, the son of Ner, do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, who are you calling out to the king? Again, it's the dark of the night. He's across probably a valley or ravine. They don't know who this is. Abner's kind of called out, as I said, because he's the like chief of security among Saul's bodyguards and commander of the men. And he calls out and he says, who is that over there? So David then answered, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your Lord, the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. Because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed, and now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. So David, he just rebukes the chief of security here. And he calls him out. He says, Abner, aren't you a man? And aren't you, among all the men in Israel, the most competent, able military man among Saul's uh, you know, company of soldiers there? And he says, Weren't you guarding the king? Look behind you. Where's Saul's spear? Where's that jug of water that was by his head? You did not fulfill your obligation and responsibility to protect your leader, to stand beside him and provide security. And David rebukes him and calls him out for it here and makes him recognize the failure of what he's done and the accountability for his guilt. Now, what David is doing here, no doubt as well, in doing this is he's also indicating to Saul these men don't love you Saul they don't love you they almost let you get murdered 
they have no interest. They don't really care about you. They may be tagging along and following your little agenda, but they don't really care about you. What David's demonstrating is, listen, if anybody loves you, Saul, I love you. This is the second time I could have killed you. And the second time in a row, I chose not to kill you. I chose to show mercy to you. I chose to refrain. And so David here demonstrates the true nature of his character, that, that further proving that these men didn't really care. David was the one who cared and showed true love to Saul because David sacrificed himself. He denied himself what he could have wanted or what he could have done and in a self-sacrificing way demonstrated his love by refraining from doing what he could have to harm Saul, which again is the epitome of love and ultimately seen most clearly in Christ. That is love. Love is self-sacrificing. That's what love does. Love sacrifices its own self-interest. Love says no to itself for the welfare and the benefit of another. That's exactly what David did to show his love to Saul by not taking revenge, not taking matters into his own hands, but leaving things to God. And I believe showing that he loved Saul. Despite how rotten Saul had treated him, he's still loving his enemy here. He's still blessing and doing good to someone who was a horrible enemy to him. Well, Saul knew, verse 17, that that was David's voice yelling in the dark. And he says, is that your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? So David says, listen, Saul, what have I done? What, what, what evil have I committed? Please look at this. David sincerely wants to know what he's done wrong. David's willing to be examined. In his humility, he's willing to be open to Saul. Please, would you explain to me what have I done wrong? What have I done to you? Why are you so agitated towards me? Why are you so hateful towards me? Why do you despise me? So? And, he's, and he's willing... Again, he's not being sarcastic. He's being genuine here. He's saying, please, tell me what I've done. I, I, I'm willing to be examined, he says. Why, why do you pursue me? What have I done? What evil have I committed? Now, therefore, verse 19, please, he says, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If, he says, the Lord has truly stirred you up against me, then let him accept an offering. So David says, look, if I have genuinely done you wrong and the Lord has stirred you to come after me to judge or discipline me, then he says, then I will take accountability for that. And he says, I want to make things right. Let me make an offering to the Lord. If truly I have done wrong before the Lord, David says, I want to make it right. I'm willing to be examined. If I'm in error, I want to make an offering. I want to make restitution and reconcile. But, he says, verse 19, if the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go, serve other gods. And he says, listen, if this is not the Lord, he says, there's only other one answer here, and that's called troublemakers. It's called, this is a work of the flesh. This is sin. And people have stirred you up with wrong ideas and caused division and caused discord and caused all these problematic things. And, and you're listening to lies, Saul. And the lies you're believing have caused people to, in a sense, treat me like a troublemaker when, when I'm not a troublemaker. And he says, and this has caused me, therefore, he says, to be driven 
from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. It had pushed David away from the people of Israel, the people of God. It had pushed David away from the tabernacle and the ability to worship God and to have to live like a fugitive among all the pagan peoples that were worshiping other gods. And David was upset about this. He's saying, listen, you've driven me away from an experience with God because of troublemaking. And he wanted those who were troublemakers to be held account for what they had done. And listen, that's the sad thing. When people become troublemakers, this is what happens. Is people get stumbled and are, are unable to experience with God what God wants them to experience. And, and, and troublemakers often cause division and discord and they just stumble people and cause them scattering all around. And David was upset about this. And so he's rebuking those who may have done this because this is truly what had actually happened. It wasn't David had done something. God wasn't leading Saul. It was the trouble that had been started. So verse 20, so now he says, do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea. Again, he identifies himself as just, so I'm nothing. I'm, I'm a worthless flea, he says, as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul, verse 21, said, I have sinned. He says, return, my son, David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. So again, Saul makes one of these sentimental confessions, looking as if he's trying to be repentant. We know obviously these are just words, unfortunately, because there are times before where Saul has said the right things with his words but then his actions go right back to the same patterns again but he here makes some sentiment he's stirred because he realizes David literally has just spared him from being put to death and he could have been put to death he should have been from a military perspective and he says I've sinned return he says David I, I won't harm you no more my life was precious and, and then he makes this admission his autobiographical statement and this is always a bad autobiographical statement Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Well, it is really sad when someone takes an honest inventory of their own life and that's their admission to summarize their life. I have erred exceedingly and I've been a fool. I've lived like a fool and I've erred exceedingly and, and, and just caused problems for my own life and here Saul does make an honest admission what a sad admission of really somewhat of a a wasted life of potential so much potential could have been there for Saul but yet because of his own selfishness and stubbornness and even more than that his unwillingness to repent genuinely he had so many opportunities listen truth of the matter is we all sin gang we all are foolish. We've all erred in different ways. The problem with Saul is this guy would never turn from it. He'd never take ownership of his own foolishness. He'd never admit that he erred exceedingly. He just kept stubbornly on the same path and was never willing to repent or turn from the direction he was going wrong. So he says, verse 23 or 22, David answered and said to him in response, here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. Again, David doesn't have an interest even in keeping the spear. He says, I'm going to leave the spear right here. I just wanted to show you what my heart was. I'm not even interested in stealing your spear. I'll leave it here. Send one of your men over to get it. May the Lord, he then says, repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. 
For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Again, you notice where David's confidence is? His, his confidence is completely in the Lord. It's in the right place for that matter. Here, David says, I'm looking to the Lord to repay me. David says, I, I could have took matters into my own hands and did what was to my own advantage. I could have repaid you myself and I could have just took the situation into my own control. And, and, and really, David could have worked the situation and worked the angle for his own self-interest. And a lot of times, listen, even if it's just in a little nasty conversation, sometimes these matters present themselves where there's that opportunity. You, you can just, you got to get that one more spinner in there because you, you got to just prove that you're right. Or you got to wound somebody back or, or you got to do something to somehow validate that you're right and someone else is wrong. And David says here, you know what? Th this is the Lord's business. It's not my business to get entangled in that. In a sense, what he's conveying to Saul is you're, you're God's problem. You're not my problem. You're God's problem. And God will deal with you. And he says, and may the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. See, that's what we're responsible for. What do I do? What do I do? This situation, I'm being mistreated. Or, or how do I handle this person? Or my spouse is so cruel to me. Or, or you know, what do I do here? I've been wrong. Just do what's right. What do I, what do I, just do what's right. Well, I don't I just, well, I just, well, that's hard. Well, just keep being faithful. Just keep being faithful to do what's right. And the Lord will repay you for your righteousness and your faithfulness and will honor you for doing what's right. And David says here, may the Lord value and preserve my life and may he deliver me, verse 24, out of all tribulation. Let the Lord do it. Let the Lord deliver you out of that situation. Let the Lord work in that matter. And Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. These are the last words Saul ever speaks to David. And, and the words he makes are, are rather true. He says to David, David, may you be blessed and you shall both do great things and prevail. Even though he greatly disliked David and he wanted to destroy David, what he could not deny was the credibility of his character and the obvious indication that the hand of God was upon his life, he could not deny what was true, no matter what he wanted to feel in his heart towards this guy. And he said, David, who you are represents exactly what is true about you. And he says, so David, may you be blessed and do great things and also you shall prevail. And, and that's exactly what David would do. But notice here, I want you to take notice, as this episode happens... David does not say, all right, well, yes, yeah, so, I mean, it's just, since you're saying that, how about you come over here and give me a hug? Give me a hug, Dad, and I'm, let's, let's just, can't wait till Thanksgiving dinner. David still realizes, you know what? I need to be a good steward here. And just because he's saying the right things doesn't mean he's safe yet. And so David still keeps distance because there have been, have there not, many times before where Saul says certain things but then his actions show something different. 
And let me just say, Jesus said, you don't cast your pearls before swine. And there is a wisdom in being able to forgive someone, not take revenge on someone, give someone the benefit of the doubt. Love believes and hopes all things. But that does not mean that we have to be naive. And if someone is not a safe person, you wait to validate the fruit first before you expose yourself in vulnerability. David said, listen, okay, I heard you I hope you're sincere this time, but in the meantime, I'm going to keep running. In the meantime, I'm going to keep a level of separation between us relationally because Saul had proven many times to say things and then not demonstrate that he was sincere by his actions. Be careful. Be careful. Because people that have a Saul syndrome, uh, they can many a times, you know, up and down, and they'll, in those moments, the emotional crescendo and all that, and they'll say all the right stuff. But be wise. Be wise. Be careful. Just keep trusting the Lord. Keep doing what's right. Turn with me to Psalm 37. I want to just read a few verses here before we go back into worship this evening. I think we're just going to close right there um, at the end of this chapter. But Psalm 37 because I think this psalm has some of the truths in it, connections. You can read the whole psalm at your leisure, but kind of connections to what David's dealing with here, facing and going through with Saul. Listen to what Psalm 37 says. Everyone there? All right, Psalm 37. Listen to what's said here. Great truths. Do not fret because of evil doers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither is the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Well, that's great advice, isn't it? And that's only the first eight verses of that psalm. Let's pray together.